Good morning. Uh, today is um, June the 28th, uh, Sunday morning. And today what we are going to do is we are going to review everything that we've studied Monday through Friday. Uh, we're going to be in our Bibles in Acts chapter 8. We're going to start in verse number 26. And we're going to hopefully work our way through Acts 9 verse number 14. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. And let me get my, my notes up here. Then we'll have a word of prayer and we'll begin. Let's see. X. There you go. All right. Acts chapter number. One, I mean, Acts, Acts chapter number eight, verse number 26. What we're dealing with is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So, um, and the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. Let's back up, I'm sorry, verse number 25. And they, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So that's where I want to start. So let's go and pray, and we'll go ahead and get into our study. Father, we love you and ask that you go before us today. Bless the reading of your word. Fathers, we pray every week. Lord, just open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to understand the things that you have for us, Lord. Take the filters out, off, Lord. Help us, Lord, just to go straight directly to your word, interpreting the context in which it was, in which it was written, and then make application to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start. The way this is transitioning here is you have Simon the sorcerer. Uh, you'll remember back up in chapter 8 and verse number 9, uh, he was, this man was the great power of God. And he was following Philip around, uh, and he believed the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, and they were were baptized. And then Simon himself believed also. He was baptized. He con he continued to follow follow the apostles around. And when the apostles, uh, which were at Jerusalem, heard from Samaria what was going on, they sent Peter and John. Uh, who, when they were come down, they prayed for them that they also might receive the Holy Ghost. And we speculate a little bit why it didn't happen in Samaria the same way it had happened in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, if they just repented, were baptized, they received the Holy Spirit. But here in Samaria, they repented and were baptized, and they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. It took Peter and John to come up from Jerusalem to pray over them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And again, you know, speculation, but you'll remember Jesus at the well with the woman. You Jews say in Jerusalem we ought to worship. Um, the Samaritans were kind of half-breeds. They were left behinds from the, the Assyrian captivity. They had a watered-down version of Judaism, but they were still considered to be Jews. Um... But I believe God had to. You remember, Peter had, was the one that was given the keys um, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was the one that offered the kingdom in Acts chapter number 2. Uh, and it was Peter here that needed to go and make sure that these Samaritans understood that in Jerusalem was going to be the seat of the king and was going to be the capital city, if you would, for the kingdom that would come. So Peter had to be involved in this, and the Samaritans needed to realize <coughs> that at least spiritually, <coughs> excuse me, they had to come back under the authority of the Jerusalem church. Um, I believe that's why Peter and them had to go and uh, be a part of that. Uh, then also, uh, when Simon saw this, and of course this is Simon the sorcerer, uh, when he saw them laying hands on these people and then they received the Holy Spirit, he offered them money. 
And of course, you remember Peter's response, your money perish with you. I don't believe that Simon ever was truly converted. As a matter of fact, if you read some of the writings of uh, Ignatius, um, Justin Martyr, um, Hippolyto, uh, Hippolytus was his name, uh, they either <clears throat> referred to Simon as a Gnostic uh, or was saying that he founded Gnosticism. So we're not sure exactly which, but either way, uh, he was not a true believer at all. So I don't think uh, Simon was ever, ever truly, truly converted. He was just after the money. Because uh, Peter told him down in chapter 8, verse 23, For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And, he's, and he said, Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if he, perhaps the thought of thine heart might be forgiven thee. And Simon said, Pray ye the Lord for me, that none of these things happen to me. So... I don't believe Simon was truly converted, and neither does many of the early church fathers. Um, and then in verse 25, And they, when they testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem, preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So were the apostles going back from whence they came, which was Jerusalem? Because they did not believe that they had a ministry beyond Jerusalem, let alone to Gentiles at this point. Uh, they were in Jerusalem waiting for the return of the king, the establishment of the kingdom. Um, and then notice in verse 26, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go uh, toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. So Philip was instructed to go from now from Jerusalem into Gaza. Of course, he may not have understood what God was telling him to do, but he did it just like he went, you know, and... Um, and met up with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, so that's what he's going to do here. And then notice uh, in verse 27, And he arose and he went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had a large uh, charge of her treasury and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, many people will read this verse like I've read it for many years and assume this is an Ethiopian gentleman who was up was in Jerusalem and now he's on his way back home but if you read the verse it says and behold a man of Ethiopia a eunuch okay uh just from the text it appears that he was not uh a born Ethiopian it appears that he was a Jew um at least he was a proselyte but he was notice it says that he had come to Jerusalem for to worship. So he obviously was an adherent to the Jewish faith. He was, he was obedient to Judaism. So I don't believe this was an Ethiopian. I believe this man was a Jew uh, or a proselyte uh, who was in Jerusalem for worship. And he was on his way back home. Uh, he was obviously there. Most would speculate he was there for Passover. Um, so he was in Jerusalem for some of the mandatory feast. Uh, and notice also that he's working for Candace, the queen um, of the Ethiopians. So he, just like Daniel, was a good Jew working for the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians. And just like Joseph was working for the Egyptians. Here we have this eunuch that was working for Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Um, so, and of course, I was listening to somebody talk the other day. I, I can't remember who it was. He was talking about how it was, it was a, a pastor here in Virginia uh, talking about how like out of a thousand or whatever Nobel Peace Prizes, like you know, over a third of them have gone to less than point something percentage of the human population, which are Jews. Um, you know, God has blessed the Jewish people with a mind. Uh, there is no doubt about that. So it's no wonder that Babylon, you know, wanted um, Daniel's help. It's no wonder that 
Egypt wanted Joseph's help, and it's no wonder that this queen of Ethiopia wanted this 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 un this Ethiopian eunuch's help. We don't know what his name was. Um, so it's very common that Jews would be in the employ of these foreign nations. Um, and then notice also Candace. I mean, I always thought for years that Candace was her name. Her name's Candace, you know. Um, no, that does not denote a proper name. Uh, Candace was actually a position. Just as there were pharaohs, there were also Candaces who ruled from the city of Moreau, which was the capital of Cush, now known as the Sudan. Um, so the name itself simply refers to a female monarch. Um, and then notice in verse 28, she was returning, he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading from Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit of the Lord, <clears throat> the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to his chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read from the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I accept some man should guide me? So now we know what God is doing with Philip. He brought him down there to meet this man. And so it's obvious from this passage that this man is reading from Isaiah chapter number 53, which speaks about the Jewish Messiah. So God knew exactly where this eunuch was going to be, and God knew that this eunuch was having some questions in regards to the text. We also talked about that just because it says he was a eunuch, it does not mean that he was a eunuch in the sense that Daniel and his friends were eunuchs. In other words, that he had been castrated. The word eunuch, if you look at, uh, if you do a word study, it could actually just mean a representative of the state. He was just there representing the queen or that was his job. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was a eunuch in the physical sense. Um, so anyway, this is another reason um, that you and I need to be students of the scripture. When's somebody going to come up beside of us and say, hey, what does this mean? You know, what, what's the Lord saying here in these verses? So the Lord was preparing you, this is the Philip, to speak with this eunuch in regards to um, the passage in Isaiah chapter number 53. Um, now notice in verse 31, and he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture where he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shearer. He opened on his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or some of the men? So he's reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And he wants to know who these scriptures are talking about. Now, I have no doubt that he had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, how could he possibly have gone up and out of Jerusalem at any time and not known of Jesus of Nazareth? And obviously, he had been around at least a few weekends. Uh, he knew about this man that had come up and been crucified. And, and there's no doubt that he may be putting two plus two together and wondering if this man might be him, uh, or at least he had his suspicions. Um, so <clears throat> he asked him directly, and then notice in verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Now remember, the New Testament had not been written, let alone canonized yet, so all the scriptures that Philip could quote to this man had to come out of the Old Testament. Uh, it's all that they knew. It's all that they had. So notice that he also preached Jesus to this man. There is a difference. The gospel of the kingdom was the message of Jesus. If you believe that this is Jesus, the king, the Messiah, repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This is not the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace was not until later. It was given to the Apostle Paul, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Prior to the giving of the gospel of grace to the Apostle Paul, all there was was the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and be baptized, for the kingdom is at hand. And that was a works gospel. It was a you got to repent, you got to be baptized, 
to, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit so that you can be a part of this kingdom that's coming. But once the kingdom was rejected, as we have spoken, um, it was a looking back at the crucifixion. It became all about the cross. It did not it did not stay about the king and his kingdom. It became about the cross. It became about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. That is the gospel of grace that was given to the Apostle Paul, only to the Apostle Paul, and that is the gospel which we preach today. We do not preach the gospel of the kingdom, but unfortunately, so many do. We have churches that teach that you got to be baptized to be saved. That's called baptismal regeneration. That is a false gospel. That is a gospel based upon the gospel of the kingdom. Even repentance, you know, I'm, I, the Bible says just believe. If thou shalt believe, you will be saved. What must we do? Believe and you will be saved, you and your family. We have to believe. Uh, the gospel of grace is about belief. Okay, and once you believe, which I think belief and repentance, you know, can be synonymous, but... It's just belief. It's when that person sits there in the church or they're listening to the Word of God explained. It Their first reaction is, isn't, oh God, I'm sorry for everything I've ever done. No, their first reaction is, I believe that. I believe that. Salvation. It just happened. Right there. <laughs> okay. Belief. You know, in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's what the Apostle Paul said. That was the gospel that was given to the Apostle Paul. Um, so Philip here is preaching the kingdom gospels, gospel here. He's preaching Jesus. And then notice in verse 36, And as they went on their way, they came into a, a certain water, and the, and, the, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Why is this eunuch wanting to be baptized? Because Philip was preaching unto him the gospel of the kingdom, repent and be baptized. So he's looking for water. So it's obvious uh, it was the same baptism of repentance that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. It's the same baptism of repentance that the apostles had always given. It was a bad, you and I are not, you and I do not receive a baptism of repentance today. We receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which happens at salvation. Um, and then notice verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now he didn't say, I believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So the kingdom gospel. And understand that faith, yes, faith is required for both. You know, I mean, to believe takes faith. I believe that. To repent takes faith. You know, obviously something's motivating you to repent. It's obviously a belief in what you're hearing or you wouldn't want to. So faith is key uh, to both. Um, now, I can't help but compare and contrast this eunuch's believing with all his heart with Simon, the sorcerer in the previous chapter, who was not right in the sight of God. See, Simon didn't believe with all of his heart. Uh, if he had, uh, he wouldn't have turned around and did what he'd done and ended up getting accused by Peter to be a man of all gall and bitterness. Um, it, it was a different level of belief here. This eunuch believed with all of his heart. He did not have mixed motives. He truly believed that this Jesus that Philip was preaching was indeed the guy that he remembers getting crucified a few years earlier. He believes with all of his heart. And and then notice in verse 38, And he commanded the chariots to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, you can see here, this: the only baptism that's mentioned in the Bible is immersion. Um, now, years ago, I made a big deal out of that as a Baptist preacher because we believed everybody needed to be immersed. Uh, not sprinkled, not poured, but totally immersed. Well, really, it's not that big of a deal because baptism, water baptism, has everything to do with the gospel of the kingdom and very little to do with the gospel of grace. Uh, you don't have to be baptized under the gospel of grace to be saved. And if anyone teaches that, they're teaching baptismal regeneration, which is heresy. It is no gospel at all. 
The only thing you have to do to be saved under the gospel of grace is believe, period. I don't have to join your church. I don't have to get in your baptismal pool. I don't have to put money in your offering plate. Okay. The only thing I have to do is believe. Now, the argument to that is, well, if you believe you will do those things, well, maybe so. But don't put the cart in front of the horse. Okay. Uh, yeah, you might feel led to do those things and you might not feel led to do those things. But either way, it does. it's not how you're saved. It may be a a proof, if you would, that you're following, because I do believe that you'll be obedient to the Lord once you truly believe. If you're not, then maybe you never believed at all. You know, if someone tells me, I love my wife, you know, but they do this and they do that, and it's horrible in the way they treat her, they don't want to spend any time with her, but then they turn around and tell me they love my wife, well, I'm having a hard time believing that because I'm just not seeing any fruit. I'm not seeing any proof in your life that you do. You know, but still, we can't get the cart before the horse. The only thing that's required for salvation is belief. Period. End of sentence. Don't add anything else to it. And that's where we start getting in trouble. Um, so, there's only two baptisms in the Bible. There's the water baptism under the gospel of the kingdom. And there's the spirit baptism, which is under the gospel of grace. Um... Then notice, um, anyone that teaches otherwise is guilty of not rightly dividing between the two Gospels. And that is the truth. Anyone that does that is not uh, rightly dividing between the two Gospels. Let's see, I'm getting, a, I'm getting some kind of a text there, but let that go. Um, notice that the unit comes up out of the water. And again... Um, the reason the unit comes up out of the water is because he was down in the water. Okay. And then Philip is whisked away. Okay. The word translated caught here is harpazo, which is also used in first Thessalonians four seventeen in regards to the rapture of the church. Uh, one day we are going to be caught ourselves. We are going to be snatched away. We are going to be translated from one place to another. Okay. Um, many point to this as how the 144,000 are going to be able to preach the gospel of the kingdom during the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of tribulation. Um, the 144,000, bear in mind, what's going to bring the church to a conclusion is the rapture of the church in first Thessalonians four seventeen, And then God's attention, the clock, if you will, is going to start ticking again. And God's focus is going to be on Daniel's 70th week. And I believe that will commence with the signing of the covenant with the antichrist between the Jews and him. And that will kick off Daniel's 70th week, which Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter number nine. But in the meantime, <clears throat> we are under the gospel of grace. But when we're gone and these 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel come on the scene, they are no longer going to be teaching the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is for the church. It's for the body of Christ. They are going to pick up on the gospel of the kingdom again. They're going to pick up on repent and be baptized. They're going to pick up on he's the king and he's offering you the kingdom. Okay. Um, so look in chapter number nine. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. Now remember that Saul had become, um, I mean, his campaign began all the way back in chapter number seven uh, at the stoning of Stephen. Um, the When it says, and Saul, yet breathing, still breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest, okay? Um, so he is going to, this obviously means that Saul is some man of means in his community. I mean, he's obviously a very powerful person, and he's obviously got a deep-seated um, hatred, if you will, a vitriol, if you will. He was a zealot, if you will, for Judaism, and he did not believe that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. 
He he every bit every bit felt that he should have been crucified. He every bit felt that Stephen should have been stoned just like he was, and that's why they laid their coats because they would take their coats off so that they can get the throwing arms warmed up. He was he was there watching and approving as they killed Stephen. And it says in verse one, verse two, and he desired letters to Damascus to the synagogues that he found any of this way, whether they be men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. So he's going to the synagogues, and I've made a big point out of this. Why is he going to the synagogues? Because that is where these messianic believers are. That is where those these who had placed, uh, had repented and been baptized. They had believed the gospel of the kingdom. They were still in the synagogues. Uh, they were still participating in temple worship. Uh, there was not a break with Judaism. It was Judaism. It was the fulfillment of Judaism. Everything in the Old Testament looked forward to a Messiah and a kingdom. And they just believed that Jesus was the one. He was the one that was foretold that would come. He was the prophet that Moses spoke of that would come, and they were listening to him. So there was not a break here. He was going to these synagogues to root out these of the way. And of course, that word, the way, Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So they became people of the way. They were faithful Jews, again, with no desire to break from Judaism. And why did Paul want to bring them back to Jerusalem? Because that's where the Sanhedrin was. That was where they were going to be judged and condemned. So he had to get them back to Jerusalem. It is where their prosecution would take place. Um, and again, what Paul had on his side, and we talked about this, uh, or maybe we're going to talk about this, is that he was a Roman citizen. But he was also a Jew. So he, this was a spiritual matter. So he was not taking them back to let Rome deal with them. He was taking them back to allow the Sanhedrin to deal with them. And the vast, overwhelming majority, I don't know what the stats are, it might be interesting to hear, how many of the Jews were actually Roman citizens like Paul? I, I would venture to say that probably almost zero of them were probably didn't want to be <laughs> a lot of them. Um, and then notice in verse number three, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shone around him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Oh boy. This is where everything changed for Saul. Uh, and we have to understand that he was a very religious man. Uh, he was a, a, a very strong adherent to Judaism. He loved God. He loved God of the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, he, he gives uh, throughout in Romans 11, 1, he says, I say then hath God cast away his people, God forbid, for I also, I am an Israelite. I am of the seed of Abraham. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. He was very proud of his Jewish roots. In Philippians 3, 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof that he may trust in the flesh, I even more. You know, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I came from the stock of Israel. I came from the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regards to the law, I am a Pharisee. And, and concerning zeal, man, I persecuted I, as to touching the righteous, which is in the law, I was blameless. So Paul was a Jew's Jew. He loved the God of the Old Testament, but he simply believed that this Jesus guy was a fake, that he was a phony. He was not the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And I pointed out that Randy White makes an interesting observation here. It is of interest that Saul is only called by his Jewish name prior to his conversion, which is true. Uh, he was referred to as Saul, but once he was converted, he was referred to as Paul. The use of the Jewish name could associate him with the rejection of God made by the Jewish people at the time of the selection of King Saul as their first king. And his point is, because <clears throat> God told <clears throat> Saul, 
Um, he said they have not, or, or who was it? The prophet, wasn't it Nathan? Um, they've not rejected you. They've rejected me. In other words, they haven't rejected you as being the priest over Israel. They've rejected me, and now they want a human king. Um, so what Randy White is saying is, just as in the Old Testament they rejected God to follow Saul, so too in the New Testament the overwhelming vast majority of the Jewish people had rejected God to follow Saul again. So if anything, you could say that Saul was kind of a prototype and a foreshadowing of Saul in the New Testament. So, you know, very interesting. Um, so notice the question uh, that God asked him, why persecutest thou me? Why are you persecuting me, man? Um, there's no doubt that Saul knew exactly what that question meant. Uh, he knew who he was persecuting, I mean, he didn't have to pull out his persecution book and decide, well, who am I persecuting? He knew who he was going after. And when, when the voice comes and says, why persecutest thou me? He knew exactly who he was persecuting. He was persecuting that man who claimed to be the Messiah. And then notice in verse 5, and he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, some disagree as to who Saul is addressing here in his response, who he's addressing. Either he was simply using a term of respect out of fear, <laughs> or he knew that he was addressing God. Uh, of course, it'd be hard for me to imagine that Saul did not know who he was addressing here. I mean, the question was, why persecutest thou me? Okay. Um, if he didn't know, after he said, who art thou, Lord, he knew the split second later who it was <laughs> because, because <laughs> he said, you know, why are you persecuting me? So very interesting there, of course. Uh, and then Jesus, like we said, drops the bomb on him and he said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And what that means is you're fighting against me. I'm trying to do something here. I'm going this way and you're going that way. And what that leads me to believe is that Saul must have had some type of conviction, at least maybe in the far back recesses of his mind or maybe in his deep thought somewhere that, you know, what if we're fighting against, what if I'm fighting against God here? Uh, I think of Jesus, <clears throat> no, uh, I think of, uh, <clears throat> who was it? Um, I guess it was Gamaliel in them. Um, uh, when uh, Peter uh, and John were preaching and he comes out and says, you know, who are we to be found fighting against God? If this is nothing, it'll come to nothing, just as it has in previous rebellions and uprisings. It'll come to nothing, lest we be found on the wrong side of God. Um, so I can't help but think that maybe Saul was experiencing some of this. Uh, he said, it's hard for you to get kick against the pricks. It means that he was working against God by failing to realize that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And again, it's an agrarian term, which is some translations will say you're, you're kicking against the goads. Uh, to goad someone on is to ag them on, to push them forward. A goal, a goad was a, 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 an implement that a farmer would use to goad or push on his oxen to keep going, to stay straight, to not stop. Uh, and so this is obviously the Lord saying, I've been goading you, but you just won't go the direction I want you to go. And that tells me that he had already begun working in Saul's life. Um, and then notice, um, uh, his next word is, what would thou have me to do? Um, that was a quick conversion. <laughs> what will you have me to do? And I believe it's it's just like that. You know, <clears throat> I was raised in a very, <clears throat> very conservative Baptist background. And, and I was taught as a young minister that, you know, and maybe this wasn't um, their intent, but... 
I always lean toward a manipulation at the end of the service uh, where, you know, you get the lights right, you get the organ right, the piano right, every head bowed, every eyes closed, make sure you get a good hymn, you know. Um, now when I look back on that, it's manipulating. Um, I think of a... Uh, many years ago, Billy Graham, when he was alive, was being interviewed by Barbara Walters on 2020. And uh, she asked him, she said, if you had to do it again, what would you do different? And his response was staggering because I can't think of any man in this century or many, even all the way back maybe to Paul, uh, that have reached so many people with the gospel. But he said, I would have made it harder and she asked him to explain what did he mean by that. He said, <clears throat> and he, he, he described how in his crusades, he would have what's called these altar counselors. And they would be dispersed throughout the stadium. And they would, on cue, move forward at certain elements in the song. And this emboldened the people around them to move as well. So that's what he meant. He said, I would have made it harder. In other words, I would have made them go down there by themselves without being emboldened by all these other people moving down. Because that crowd mentality, that herd mentality kicks in. You know, if you're standing there, there's nobody moving. <clears throat> that's definitely harder then if all of a sudden this huge wave of people starts going toward the front, it's easy to be a part of that. And that's what Billy Graham meant by that. And what that tells me is that he knew in the heart, in his heart of hearts, that the vast majority of the people that were coming down during that time of manipulation, if you will, were not truly repentant at all. They were not truly believing uh, they were not truly responding to the gospel of grace, but there was a certain amount of manipulation going on. And that's why I just don't do it. I don't do it anymore. Because when, 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 when you, if you look in these verses and trembling and astonished, uh, he said, who art thou Lord? And, and he says, I am the one you're persecuting. What will you have me to do? I mean, that was conversion right there. I mean, as soon as he believed, as soon as I'm preaching a service, it doesn't matter what the subject is. The soon as that person in that seat says, I believe that, they're saved, period. They're converted. Anything that happens after that is a response to that belief. Now, I sometimes do times of commitment where I say, hey, maybe God... Maybe you became a believer today and you want to pray with someone about that. That's fine. But too many people look back on altar calls and place their faith in the altar call instead of their belief in Jesus. They equate their salvation with the altar call and not their belief. So I, I just don't engage in <clears throat> that manipulation anymore. And uh, uh, I've got people that uh, get upset over that. Uh, but I just, I just don't do that anymore. So, um, so he said, what will you have me to do? Um, God has a knack of taking men that are high, low and men that are low, high. <laughs> and again, I think of Saul, you know, he took King Saul who was very low and he brought him high. And now he takes Saul Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and he brings him low. You know, God has a way of doing that. Um, and of course, Saul recounts this event at least twice, maybe three times in the book of Acts, his salvation experience. Um, in Acts twenty six fifteen, for example, he's recounting his conversion experience. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But arise, stand on thy feet, for I have appeared before thee for a purpose. See, we're not given those details here in chapter number 9. But when we compare Scripture with Scripture, 
we see what the Lord actually said to him. Now the others around him, uh, because you see here in the next verse, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. So what did that voice say? Well, according to Acts 26, years later, the Apostle Paul said, disclose what he said to him. He said, but arise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Why? How? To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That is not the gospel of the kingdom. Okay? He was going to take the gospel of grace to the Gentile nations from this point forward. Um... Now, it took him a while to get there, but that's what God was calling him to do. Uh, then notice in verse number 7, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and as when his eyes were open, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. Now, Saul was blinded for three days. Um, some would make a comparison between Saul's three days without sight and Jonah's three days in the belly of the great fish. Why? Because both of these men had a change of heart <laughs> as a result of their experience. Jonah was more than willing to go to the people of Nineveh, and Saul here is more than willing to embrace the Jewish Messiah that he had been uh, rejecting and persecuting for so long. Uh, Les Feldick makes another observation that should give us a clue as to Saul's calling in that he is the only apostle that was called outside of Jerusalem. The other 12 were called inside the confines of Jerusalem, but now Saul is being called on the road to Damascus going up to Syria. Uh, and again, with what Paul told us in Acts chapter number 26, God was setting him apart not to preach to the house of Israel but to preach to the Gentiles. Not to preach the gospel of the kingdom to Israel, but to teach another gospel, that of grace, uh, to the Gentiles. Um, and another interesting thing, as far as I can tell, Paul was the only one of the apostles that was a citizen of Rome. He was a Roman citizen. Not only was he a Jew, but he had a very powerful tool he was a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he had protection that the other apostles did not have. He had an ace in the hole, if you will, that the other apostles simply did not have. And which uniquely um, qualified him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And of course, the ruler of the known Gentile world at this time was Rome. Rome was the ruling Gentile power at the time. So Saul was both uniquely a Jew and a Gentile by citizenship. And we'll find later on that he actually does play this trump card on several occasions to get out of trouble <laughs> and to get into trouble. Uh, for example, in Acts 21, 37, and Paul was being led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, may I speak to you? And he said, oh, you can speak Greek? And he said, aren't you an Egyptian, which was b before made these made this uproar and led us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers? And Paul said, no, I am a man. Yes, I'm a Jew of Tarsus, but I am from the city of Cilicia. I am a citizen of no mean city. Therefore, I beseech you, let me speak. So Paul used that, that Roman citizen trump card to speak to the people. And he does it again in Acts 22 and verse 24. And the chief priest commanded him to be brought into the castle and bade that he should be examined by scourging. In other words, they were going to beat him. Why were they going to beat him? Because they didn't know he was a Roman citizen. They thought he was just one of those Jews. Uh, and bade that he should be examined by scourging that they might know what the people were so upset about him about, at him about. And as they bound him with the thongs, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, 
Is it lawful to you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And that changed the whole story. <laughs> they immediately unbound him because they realized that he was a Roman citizen. Now, this, I believe, uniquely qualifies to be Paul to be a the apostle, the only apostle to the Gentiles. The twelve were apostles to the house of Israel. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. And these things uniquely qualified him to be so. And again, um, you know, I can't help but go back. I mean, people just don't see this. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a classroom as an undergrad student, grad student, postgrad student, all studying theology and Bible. And I've read or I've been told that um, <clears throat> that Peter got ahead of God in Acts chapter um, number one when he chose Matthias to take Judas's place instead of waiting for the Apostle Paul. Because Paul should have been the 12th Apostle, not Matthias. But anyone that tells you that does not understand the uniqueness of the ministry of Paul. Paul, that would have been all fine and good if Paul would have been called to the house of Israel. But he was not. He was called to the Gentiles. Um, <clears throat> in Acts one twenty one, Peter stands up Bear in mind, the ascension has already taken place. Jesus is gone. The 40-day seminar between the resurrection and the ascension are over. And then Peter looks around. Judas, who had fallen by transgression, says, we need to pick somebody to take Judas's place. Um, Wherefore, of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us from the beginning of the baptism of John until the very same day that he was taken up as a witness of with us of his resurrection. Saul didn't meet any of those requirements. Um, he was not there. I mean, it had to be someone who had been there during John's baptism, most likely had to have been baptized by John. I think that's what that's saying followed Jesus his entire three-year earthly ministry. Saul wasn't there for that. Saul didn't follow Jesus during his three-year earthly ministry. And Saul was not present during the 40-day seminar between his ascension and his resurrection. Paul was not even remotely qualified to, to take Judas's place. Paul was never intended to take Judas's place. Matthias was the one that would take Judas's place. So Saul came nowhere near to meeting any of these requirements. Saul was distinct from the 12 from day one. On the very day that he was converted, I have separated thee to go to the Gentiles from day one. Uh, Paul even mentions this in Galatians chapter one, <clears throat> verse number 11. It says, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. Now, what he's saying is, I didn't get this from the apostles. I didn't get this from Peter. I didn't get this from John. I didn't get this from Matthias. I didn't get this from any of those guys. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this gospel that I preach is, is not the gospel that the other guys taught. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past, and that means how I lived my life in time past in the Jews' religion, that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God. I wasted it, man. I mean, he's saying, I mean, there was no one equal to me in my zeal to persecute those of the way, those who followed this guy, Jesus. Nobody came close to me. I was a Jew's Jew, is what he's saying here. Um and profited in the Jews' religion above many of my of my equals in my own nation. I was even more zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, he separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. We're the heathen. <laughs> We're the Gentiles. There's only two people groups on the face of this planet, according to the Bible, as Jew, Gentile. There's only one race of man, 
on the on the face of this planet. That's you and me, all of us. We are all the race of man. Okay? And among that race of man, there's only two different types of men. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. That's it. There's no black, there's no white, there's no yellow, there's no brown. Um, that's another subject for another day. Uh, <laughs> if you're a racist, then you don't like the race of man. Uh, it had nothing to do with skin color. Um, but anyway, that's another sermon. I'll put that someplace else. Uh, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son to me that I might preach among the heathen, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. I didn't need to go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because they didn't have anything to tell me. The gospel of grace. They didn't know the gospel of grace. They did not know the gospel of grace until Paul told them the gospel of grace, which was in Acts chapter number 15. We're in Acts 9. Paul was the one that went back and shared with the apostles in Jerusalem the gospel of grace. They didn't know the gospel of grace. And they left that council with the agreement that Peter and the others would go to the circumcision, the Jew, and Paul would continue his gospel of grace to the uncircumcision, which is the Gentile. You and me. There we go, Scott. That's true. Saints and ain'ts. <laughs> you either in or you out. Uh, that's all God sees now. Um, so, again, Paul was, <clears throat> was unique in his calling and in his giftings. Uh, look in verse number 10 through 14 in this verse where I'm going to wrap up for this week. And there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and he said, he, he, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street that is called Straight, and acquire in the house for Judas, one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand upon him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many, many, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to the saints that are at Jerusalem, and how in here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon his name. So Ananias, Paul is given a vision, Saul is given a vision that a man's going to come and take him up to show to show him something. Now God also comes to Saul to make sure they've got they're working they've got the same email and says, "Listen, there's a man whose name is Saul, who I've already told him you're coming." And then Ananias says, "That's all good and well, Lord, but I've heard about this guy that he's got letters from Jerusalem to come in the synagogues up here in Damascus and persecute those who believe in you." Okay, and he's got all the authority of the chief priest to bind everybody that calls upon thy name. Okay, now, so we're introduced to this guy, Matthias. He's a disciple of Damascus, which that means he was one of those believing Messianic Jews that was up in Damascus in one of those synagogues that Saul was after. So you're saying, Lord, you want me to go to the guy that's out to get me, to take me back to Jerusalem, to have me put before the Sanhedrin and probably killed. You want me to go and, and minister to this guy. So you can see the incredulity that's going on in Ananias's mind at this moment. Now, <clears throat> no doubt, uh, with that in mind, it's any wonder that Ananias knew exactly who Saul was. Uh, he knew exactly who he, who he was. Uh, he said, Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy, how much evil he hath done to the saints in Jerusalem. And <clears throat> that word saints, again, he's obviously referring to the Jewish Messianic believers that believe the gospel of the kingdom in Jerusalem that had repented and been baptized and were waiting for the king and the kingdom. I've heard what he's done to these guys in Jerusalem. And Paul will mention uh, Ananias later in his testimony in Acts 22, verses 11 12, when he says, Ananias was a devout man according to the law and had a good report of all the Jews that lived there. Again, <clears throat> you see here that Ananias was still participating in temple worship. He was still keeping the law. He was still part of the Jewish synagogue. There was not this break, this imaginary break that took place at Pentecost. 
It did not happen. The Jews that believed were still Jews. They were just known as Jews of the way. They were still part of temple worship. They were still going to the synagogues. They didn't start immediately start the Christian fellowship down on the corner somewhere. They were not even known as Christians. They would not be known as Christians until Antioch. And those in Antioch was a Gentile church. So again, we just, uh, we get all this stuff messed up in our heads. And anyway, um, <clears throat> so obvious from the text that the believing Jews had not stopped temple worship. They maintained their Judaism, but, but had accepted the gospel of the kingdom. Okay. Um, Paul also refers to this in Acts 26 in verse number nine. In Acts 26, 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison. And of course, the saints he's referring to is the Jewish believers, having received authority from the chief priest, and when they were put to death, that obviously I think is, I think is not only referring to Stephen, but I think there was many more after Stephen, having given my voice against them. Uh, and I punished them often in every synagogue. So he would go from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue trying to root out these of the way, these who had accepted Christ as the Messiah. And I compelled them to blaspheme. In other words, I gave them an option. You turn your back on this Jesus or I'm going to kill you or I'm going to have you arrested. So he compelled them to blaspheme. It doesn't say how many of them took him up on that offer, but that's what he compelled them to do. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Again, this verse, <clears throat> these verses, fly in the face of the notion that the body of Christ was born in Acts chapter number 2. These Jews were still involved in temple worship. They were still keeping the law uh, they were still a part of the Jewish synagogues and what was taught in the Jewish synagogues, Old Testament law. Um, it's important that we see that this is the first time that we see the term saints, which I've already hammered a few times, mentioned in the book of Acts. And it is always, always referring to the Jewish believers. Uh, it is also true when it is mentioned the first time in the New Testament, in Matthew 27, 52, and the graves were open and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. It's referring to Jews. And again, the word saint is found four times in the book of Acts, and it's always referring to Jewish believers. And again, this goes with the law of first mention, which is something you learn in hermeneutics class. Hermeneutics is how you properly and consistently interpret the Bible. And in hermeneutics, you are taught the law of first mention. And just in a nutshell, when it's mentioned, the, the context and the interpretation of which it is mentioned the first time is the way it should be considered every other time it's mentioned thereafter. Okay? So, <clears throat> it means that what it first means, it should always mean throughout. Um, the reasoning is that the Bible's first mention of a concept is the simplest and clearest presentation. Doctrines are then more fully developed on that foundation. So to fully understand an important and complex theological concept, find where it was first mentioned in the Bible. And what did it mean when it was first mentioned in the Bible? Because what it meant there is probably what it means here. That's the law of first mention. Um, I was looking at a comment from uh, Saul here. Uh, Saul, <laughs> Scott, first church to identify with temple type worship priesthood. Yeah. Um, so amazing how the Catholics and Eastern Orthodox churches are so adamant that they are the only way. The first church and identify with temple type worship. Isn't it though? All they did was... If you go back historically, all they did, you know, of course, that's replacement theology. Um, they believe that they are now Israel 
and they have incorporated Israel's worship into their churches because they believe that they're Israel. So they have literally set up a priesthood. They have literally set themselves, you know, and uh, they place themselves between the people and the altar because they are the mediator between God and the people. Yeah, that's exactly what they've done, Scott, is uh, they have appropriated um, the temple into the church. Um, and that's what they've done. And of course, they do believe they are the only way. Uh, any good, faithful Catholic, now there's a lot of ignorant Catholics uh, that will say differently, but the Catholic Church teaches that they are the only way to salvation, period, and it comes through the sacraments. And, um, and of course, you know, they haven't changed in that regard at all. The only difference is we have a lot of ignorant Catholics running around today. Uh, that same argument can be made for Islam. Uh, anyone, just like there are uh, liberal Christians, there are liberal Muslims, if you will. Uh, not really Christian, not really Muslim, you know. Um, and they teach things that their faith simply does not believe. Uh, so another sermon for another day. But uh, anyway, good observation there, brother. All right, then. There we go. We've covered Acts 8.26 through Acts 9.14. And uh, again, I gave these studies Monday through Friday of last week. You can go back and look on these, on those, and then I'll update, upload this one to the blog uh, with all of my notes for you to take at, take a look at later and study it on your own. Well, God bless you guys. I sure do appreciate you being with me again this Sunday morning. Um, might have went a little long. No, I think I did, but uh, I got through the text. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember always that God does love you. God does want the best for you. And God is working all things out for our good, whether we see it or not. Even whether we acknowledge it or not. God is on our side. <laughs> God bless you guys. Hope that you have a great Lord's Day.